0: What a subject matter. So I'm going to read you just a a uh, phrase or two. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by train? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky thank you so much let's pray we won't stop and think about it enough Lord but help us to stop and think about it more and I'm praying that today in this time together it become more evident more tangible that we would feel the touch of the nail pierced hands And I'm asking now, Lord, that none of us would quail or quiver from the call to be like Jesus and that we would all sense him by our side as we walk in his way. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. I'm in the middle of a series on true men. And to spend five sermons on one paragraph, you better think about it and make sure you know what you're doing. If the paragraph didn't say the greatest want, and if it didn't describe the world as the subject matter of that want, maybe we could squeeze it down into one summary of five principles. But because it says that the greatest need of the world is the right kind of person, maybe because the instrument of delivery is as important as the message that's being delivered, maybe because the fruit of the message on the messenger, maybe taking the time to look at these significant descriptions of need, Are important. Somebody have a bulletin I can borrow? We're going to say this quote together every Sabbath. Teach it to your kids, stick it in your Bible. Let's say it together. The greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. You tell me, of a person listening here today who doesn't really want to be that kind of person. We were made in the image of God. We were called to a nobility and a dignity that the world will take note of, but it's pricey. It's pricey. Years ago, when my kids were little, I went through a very challenging experience working for my church, my church that I love. I was in my early 30s and I had watched some decisions and actions happen that were totally lacking in integrity. It was a train wreck waiting to happen and everybody who could have and should have stopped it by standing in the way and throwing the switch and saving the train from going off the bridge just jumped off the tracks. And in my ministry, I've had to deal with this lots of time, you know, everybody's saying, did you hear what they're all talking about? People will come to me thinking they're doing me a favor and anonymously carrying with them supposedly 99% of the church. And as they convey to me their information, and I watch the solitary light of the locomotive at the head of a train that may have a hundred cars behind it, or maybe just one, bearing down on me. And the intent of this dysfunctional action is that I'll jump out of the way too, and the train can roll on through. And thus, many a dysfunctional church is codified and calcified and eventually buried What was particularly difficult about it was that I had been raised on this statement by my church school teachers. Praise the Lord for church school teachers. And this statement had been written in my mind as a man of principle, and I feared that the prophetic work of which every parent and pastor and administrator is a part of, and certainly every preacher, ought to involve this kind of principle. It ought to ring true to the innermost person when it didn't, it was exceptionally disappointing. But when it went beyond that, because the absence of this kind of integrity was marked with power over me to affect me negatively, then I was on a real journey. And I want to tell you, the devil was there and he was sowing the seeds. Throw some bitterness out here. See if it'll grow. I think his heart's ripe. Fertilize it with a few more little chapters and a little innuendo and... An opportunity missed here and looked over there. It worked. The seed sprouted. And you can be sure the devil was there to water this part of the garden of my heart. And it got worse, and it got worse until finally I was on vacation with some family members who worked for the institution that I love, the church. And they were in positions of authority. And we got into a conversation. And the ground had been so strewn with the seeds of resentment. And the fruit had grown up to where now, it wasn't just visible to the inside look, but it was audible. We were sitting in a building in Maine in the summer camp, Laura and when I walked out of that building, I was so angry. And between the little cabin we were staying in and where the family had been gathered, my wife summoned the courage And I am so thankful for her to look over at me and say, You sound bitter. It's hard to have youthful ideas and carry large responsibilities, which I was. And to be stuck between your convictions and a church and its organization. I had allowed my faith to waver and had taken my eyes off Christ, who held the tiller and could take this ship through the storm, and all I could see were people who somewhere along the way appeared to have abandoned trueness and honesty in their inmost person. And it was hurting me And I wasn't much to cry, so I guess I had to be mad. That one confrontation by my wife started me on a soul-searching journey to make sure that I wasn't eaten up in the process of addressing evil. Now, 20-some years later... I realized what I couldn't see back then. Back then, they were all people on pedestals, and now they're people. Some of it is being the age I am, some of it is just recognizing that everybody has a story and there's a reason for how they're acting. But there's one thing that I haven't given up on and I don't want you to give up on it either is that higher than the highest thought can think is God's ideal for man. And this paragraph describes how you get there. It's not that you pull yourself up by the bootstraps character-wise, it's that you let Jesus take you by the hand and help you through every difficult circumstance. That's what God wants to do, and by God's grace, that's what he was doing with a young preacher, and by God's grace, that's what he's still doing today. So as we come to our paragraph this morning, we've gone past men who can't be bought or sold, not with favor, not with money, not with position, not with words of affirmation. No, they're true. But now we're on to men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. And I just want to ask you this. If you're supposed to be true in your inmost soul and honest, with who is that trueness operative? If you ask me or tell me I'm supposed to be true in my marriage, that's with my wife. If you tell me I'm supposed to be honest with my kids, that's my family. But when you tell me I'm supposed to be honest and true in my inward person, who's that with? Well, you might flippantly sound off yourself. I've not found myself to be naturally good at being true. So I'm guessing that how it started is how it starts with you and me. How did it start? Adam and Eve in the garden? God says, I want to give all of this to you. There's only one thing I don't want you to do, and that is hang out at the tree of evil. I don't, you cannot... It's not a preference. You can't have this garden and eat from that tree. She did, he did. God comes walking in the garden later that day and they're hiding. Nothing's hidden from God about you, me, or them. But they're hiding, and look what they do. You know, God, that snake you created. You know, God, that woman you created. You know, God, this is your problem. You see how fast a person can deviate from being honest and true in their inmost soul? I mean, it happens just like that. So if you think it doesn't happen to you, stop and think again. If your soul is a virtual wasteland unexplored, then this sermon is for you. And by the way, the devil has one great hope at the very end of the age, and that is in this economy of attention that you will be so distracted that you don't grow personally and you don't even really know yourself. I know things about myself in this phase of life that I didn't know in my middle 30s. And I knew things then I didn't know in my adolescent years. God wants to strengthen us, Paul says, in the inner man in Ephesians 3.16, so the devil of course wants those regions unexplored. Made in the image of God, called to represent him in an evil age, we cannot afford to have our minds darkened like Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Paul in Ephesians picks it back up, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because the ignorance that's in them because of the hardness of their heart. So this morning, I want to do two things. I want to look at the lives of two men, who I believe started on the same track with much of the same original character components, one by the name of Saul, one by the name of David, and watch how their lives flow in and out of trueness and what God does. Now. There's a reason I'm doing this. And let's look, if we could, in the book of Matthew chapter 7. There's a reason I'm doing this, because if ever you needed discernment, you sure do need it now. Never has the world been so polarized. Should we be surprised? As the Holy Spirit is withdrawn, Matthew chapter 7, as the Holy Spirit is withdrawn, the deceits, the anger, the division... Matthew chapter 7. If ever you needed the Lord before, you sure do need him now. If you haven't read the book of Jeremiah recently in conjunction with the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, I encourage you to read it. Amazing book. Why? Because it's mainly about what verse 15 is about. Jesus says, the only sermon recorded by our Lord beware of the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Everybody listening to me here today has to decide. Is he a false prophet? Most of you have decided otherwise. That's why you're here. But it is your job to discern. Jesus said, beware. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So very good trees bear good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you'll know them by their fruits, but he's not done. We need a little help still because there's a lot of people that wear the moniker pastor, teacher. There are lots that wear the moniker parent, but some are false and some are true. But let's just stick with prophets for the moment, could we? Not everyone who says to me, verse 21, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not... Now, pay close attention, because this is some form of potential fruit. Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, did we not cast out demons? And in your name, did we not perform many miracles? And then, surprise, surprise... I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Okay, so let's make sure we get it going into the subject matter about being true and honest in your inmost souls. The fruit can't be the prophesying, the casting out, in the miracle working because those are activities. They are not reflections of character. So it's not how well you can preach or teach or what position you hold in any organization. It's not how high you've climbed the ladder. There must be something else. And I'm going to show you what it is. Take your Bibles and open them, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 13. The life of Saul. A man with a great beginning and a pitiful end. First Samuel, looking at chapter 13. I'm going to show you two kings, each of them rebuked two times, and each of them with unique responses to the rebukes. 1 Samuel chapter 13. We'll begin with verse 8. 1 Samuel 13, verse 8. What's the context? There's going to be a war. The problem is Saul's army is running away. Some are going to caves and cellars, and some are crossing the Jordan River into the land of Gad. The other problem is the prophet's not here, and he said he would be. Verse 8. Now he waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. Gilgal being that spot where after they crossed the Jordan River, they set up their 12-stone altar not far from Jericho. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said... The Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal, and I'm not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Notice something. There is extreme pragmatism that is a violation of law, and there is fear. But for the sake of the armies of Israel, the nation itself and its new king... He is willing to disobey that which the Spirit has said not to do, which the law said not to do, and which the prophet said was a mistake to have done. It's not a good situation. When we look at the life of Saul, we find this rebuke, verse 13. Samuel said... You've acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. It was a great time to repent, but that didn't happen. Turn over to chapter 15. Different scenario. Let's set the stage. The cup of iniquity of the Amalekites is full, probably more than full, knowing the nature of God. And Saul is directed by Samuel to destroy the nation. It's a nation that was not meted out judgment in the conquest of Caleb and Joshua. And to make sure we all understand how wicked and vile the nation was during the days of the exodus from Egypt, they preyed on the weak, the tired, and the elderly. Quite a group of people. Only God understands when nations have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, but many today are headed wholesale that way. This one had already made it. And Saul was directed, it's judgment time, execute everyone. He didn't do it. Samuel shows up. The king is alive. The best animals are alive. And Samuel wants to know why he didn't do what he was told. The king said he did. And in the midst of this very tense prophet and king's showdown, after Saul has repeatedly said he did what he was told, Samuel is going to bring it to an end, verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Now you need to know Samuel has prayed all night long weeping before the Lord that he'd change his mind. Samuel was up the entire night before shedding tears over this young man grown into a middle-aged man who is no longer honest and true in his inmost person. He's made a monument to himself, and Samuel will have to tell him, when you were little in your own eyes and you were humble, God could do something with you, but not anymore. Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Speak. Samuel said, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them and utterly until they're exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but you rushed upon the spoil? And you did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We're back to being bought and sold, aren't we? Then Samuel was told by Saul, verse 20, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the choicest things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said... Character issue. Does the Lord have as much delight in worship, burnt offerings, as he does in doing what you're told? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion, listen to the prophetic diagnosis. These aren't words just pulled out of the sky. This is the problem. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, witchcraft, some of your Bibles say, and insubordination is as the iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you from being king. And look what happens. Now, I want to lay something over verse 24. I want to lay the word Judas on verse 24 because he's fought with the prophet and fought with the prophet and fought with the prophet. But finally, when the prophet summons the strength of God to tell him it's done, then Saul says, I guess I did make a mistake. I've sinned. I've indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I've sinned, but please honor me now before the elders and my, and my people before the Lord and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. And the rest of the story is pretty unpleasant. What happened to Saul? Saul. Question. Now, the statement what happened to Saul can happen to me, and it can happen to you. Started out good, praise the Lord. Sincerely followed Jesus as a 12 year old, praise the Lord. I believe a lot of those 12 year old commitments are exceptionally good. You were pure, you really loved God. You really wanted to do what's right, you're no different than Saul. The truth of the matter is none of us are any different than Saul, not even David in some respects, but we all get to make up our mind as to whether or not the prophetic voice can do anything for us. Now, I'm not going to take the time to take you there. But I'm gonna tell you in chapter 18, verse 10, David is playing the harp in the presence of Saul, and Saul has an evil spirit come over him, and he picks up a spear, and he throws it at David to pin him to the wall, and he escapes. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, the next chapter, the same thing happens again. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan is in a dialogue with his father about David, and he gets so angry, he throws the spear again. That was not the kind of man Saul was. You need to remember, when Jabesh Gilead was under siege, it was Saul and the noblemen who went up and delivered Jabesh Gilead. And when Saul and Jonathan fell on Mount Gilboa, and their bodies were pinned up on a wall, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who went and got them down. Saul elicited the best And the debt that those men in Jabesh Gilead owed to Saul, they repaid in nobleness of purpose, even though Saul's life went off the rails. You need to understand something. When a man loses true north, and it goes for a woman or a child or a teenager or a senior citizen, when you lose true north, you've got to silence and marginalize everybody who makes you feel insecure by the purity of their hearts and the trueness of their actions. It's not enough to say to the master of the court, would you get that young shepherd out of here? I don't want to listen to his music anymore. It's not enough to say to your son, go away and be quiet. No, you pick up a spear and you just as readily kill Jonathan as you'd kill David. You see, those types of activities haven't gone away in the modernization of civilization. We don't use literal spears to take people out today. Instead, we stifle opposition with a pen or a microphone or a position or social media. You see, you can know someone is untrue when they can't listen to the other side. It must be squashed darkened, and pushed into the recesses. You can know that someone has lost their spiritual bearings when they have to attack the messenger, not the subject matter, when ad hominem is the communication du jour of the day. You can know that somebody has lost their way when moral things produce immoral outbursts or backlash emotionally, and you can know somebody has lost their way when they must resort to mockery and scorn. Now why am I telling you this? (laughs) I'm telling you this because all along the rest of your life, whether you're young or old, you're gonna deal with what Jesus said to pay attention and be careful of because there will be false prophets in your purview And you better be able to discern of whom the Spirit of the Lord is moving and ministering. But as soon as silence and smear and besmirching has to go on, you know you're dealing with somebody who's not honest and true in their inmost person. This last week, a friend of mine, and myself were written about in two different articles. One made us the equivalent of Desmus Desmond Fordites and the other made us the equivalent of David Koreshites. Really is right. One even suggested that through our messaging, we were a part of, I may not get it quite right because I didn't plan to say it, but I'm going to say it to show you how far off the rails some people go, wholesale ritual mass murder. Now, I'm not fazed by it. I think it only declares the darkness from which they launch on the Internet their salacious and hellacious attacks. And for any one of them that might watch this message, I would tell you this. I have a phone number. It's printed on the bulletin. And anybody that wants to call me up and visit, I would be glad to do that because I really believe that Christian men and women can sit down and discuss ideas without moralizing and demoralizing. When you've got to pick up the spear and smear, or worse than that, seek to destroy. Yes, there are people for whom legitimate duly processed speaking appointments have been canceled. Silencing is a technique, but it's the one they used on Jesus and it finally worked at the cross. They picked up stones in John chapter 10 to take him out. They tried in Nazareth to throw him off the hillside and finally they found a weak Roman governor and a corrupt high priest that would do the deal for them. Satan found his people. But listen to me. When you've got to get mad and resort to measures of darkness to get your point across, you're in trouble. This is Saul when he's no longer honest and true in his inmost person. Now let's look at David, strumming away on the hillside, facing the bear and the lion and eventually the giant. Wouldn't it be nice if David's life only goes from victory to victory, but it doesn't? He's chased around. He leaves after one of those attempted spearings, and he goes to the city of Nob. And in the city of Nob, he tells a bold-faced lie, telling the, the priest that he's on a special mission for Saul. And that's why he's there by himself, and he's going to meet up with everybody else in a little bit. But in the meantime, I need a sword, and I'm hungry. So out comes Goliath's sword, and here comes the showbread. The problem is there's an Edomite there, a descendant of Esau, and he watches it all happen. Saul hears about it and summons the priest. The priest is bold enough to say, of course I helped him. You had no soldier as faithful as David. Then Saul, no longer true and honest in his inmost soul, says to the temple guard, destroy them all. There are 86 men standing there. They won't unsheath their swords. So he looks at Doag, a man who could never even begin to get into the category of education, page 57. He says, All right, you kill them then. And he unsheathed his sword, and 85 of the 86 die that day in Saul's palace. But it's not done yet. You remember Saul, who left the king of the Amalekites alive? He dispatches. Doeg to the city of Nob, where fathom this, all of the women and the children and every breathing thing is destroyed. That's David at a moment that's not true and honest and is in his inmost soul. And there's other chapters too, you know, 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 25. In 25, Nabal insults him. And he says, I'm tired of this. And he gets a bunch of men, and he's going to go kill. And Abigail comes along, and he gets a prophetic confrontation from a powerful, courageous, education, page 57, woman. He writes a psalm, Psalm 141, "'Let the righteous smite me, and it'll be a blessing to him. "'Let him strike me, and it'll be a balm to my soul.'" This is David on the other side, or the same side of Saul. Of course, we see David being chased by Saul and in that cave, and he's unsheathing his knife, and everybody in the corner is whispering, "'Take him out. God gave him to you. Kill him.'" And David comes close, but instead he cuts off a corner of the robe instead, and his conscience smites him. And finally, we have that encounter after he takes another man's wife and murders him in the process. A little baby dies, or will die, and a bold man shows up who's not afraid, And he tells a story of a rich man and a poor man and a little lamb that's used for supper. And David steps up off the throne and he says, that man should die. And Nathan says, self-imposed verdict. It's you. Our scripture reading, let's turn there, Psalm 32. It's an inside look. At a man who has wandered across the moral landscape and done tons of damage, but he's coming back. And this morning I'm talking to those who need to come back. They need to be principled, loving, faithful children of God. Psalm 32, how blessed, verse 1, is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is written as a result of the encounter with Nathan the prophet. It couldn't be kept secret. It all came out in the open. David isn't sorry for political sake. David is sorry. And he's telling what's been going on inside of him as he's been wrestling these months. Verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. He had a beautiful woman. The story was buried in a grave out on some battlefield, he thought. But the man wasn't free because the Holy Spirit lives and he convicts people of sin. Doesn't matter what modern society says. Verse 4, day and night your hand was heavy on me. My vitality was draining away as with the fervent heat of summer. But then there's a change. Thanks to the prophet, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I didn't hide. And you could also write in the byline, and I didn't excuse it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. No wonder it says in the margin that somewhat mysterious term, Selah. Therefore, coming straight from the man who was not acting after a man after God's own heart, but his heart has been recalibrated In the encounter with the prophet, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you. And you know what? You might find yourself acting not too godly as well. And you can still pray to him at a time when he may be found. Yes, I want you to know that there's nobody listening to me today who has the power to keep their heart calibrated to what is true. And honest on the inside. There's a constant pressure. It's a orthodontic pressure and an attempt to rearrange the life. Everywhere you go, something's beeping or buzzing or flashing for your attention. The idea of being still and knowing that I am God. The devil wants it pushed completely off your radar. And if I'm talking to anybody 30 years of age or younger, when your parents have enough courage and enough guts to either draw some different lines or talk to you, even in your 20s, about how this thing's wrapped around your heart and like a boa constrictor, it's depriving you of spiritual oxygen, you ought to be thankful there's people in your life that'll speak up and say, you know what? You're laying a cockeyed foundation in the early part of your life and you'll never build a skyscraper on it. It'll be a cardboard shanty all your life. Exploring the inner person is something you can only do with God. A good spouse is another potential partner. Yes, when my wife looked at me in the dark of that main summer night and said, you sound bitter, I had to either have a quick pastoral powerful rebuttal to tell her she didn't know what she was talking about or I needed to let her prophetic truth do its work and hew away on me too. And I'm thankful she had the courage and I'm thankful I let her. So these false prophets, they're running around question is whether or not you'll have trueness in you to recognize them it's not about data the decisions you have to make it's about light versus darkness in the deepest in most places it's the same prayer that david prayed that he's calling us to lord search me and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting psalm 139 God's church is weak and impotent. It is not impacting the world. And there is a reason. And the reason is Christ is not enthroned within the Lord of glory to shape all aspects of our life. And consequently, like Gandhi would say, I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians very much. If you wanna have an impact, you're gonna to have to have the courage that this kind of godly living takes because the world is redefining love. They're trying to redefine the very nature of what God is and they're trying to make it look like anybody that holds on to the old past is the problem. Yes, it's gonna get attention and it will garner respect and it will gather conflict into your life. But the truth of the matter is not knowing dark from light it's the blindness that sets you up to miss out on the joy of living in that new Jerusalem. It's not about data. How do I know it's not about data? Because light came into the world and people loved darkness more than light and they crucified the light of men. It's not about data because Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 7 that you can study your life away and never come to a knowledge of the truth. Why? Because coming to a knowledge of the truth requires being honest in your inmost soul. Jesus would say, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Paul will tell us in Philippians 2, 9, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. So how do I know it's not about data? Because Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 9 tell me that when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and it lands on this earth, when the wicked are resurrected to face the executive portion of the judgment, some of them have already seen Jesus come one time. And the living evidence that God is genuinely Lord and has more power than the the arch apostate is right there in the presence of the beauty and the peace of the redeemed. And yet they go after the city like they think they're going to win. Don't tell me it's about data. It's about how true your heart is. And what happened to Lucifer eventually happens to every human being that's lost. They get to where they don't know themselves, and they can't know truth, and they don't know God. Sober, 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 sober. How do you become honest and true? Well, first of all, you pray the same prayer David prayed. Lord, create in me a clean heart and put a new and right spirit in with me. Another psalm written after the horrendous experience with Bathsheba. If you want to go from being a pagan to a prince or a princess, there's a process. You have to be open to letting the Holy Spirit explore with you your soul. You've got to recognize when God's talking to you. You do that two different ways. You find the sources of inspiration, and I don't mean man-made, I mean divine, so the Bible and the prophetic gifts, and you find somebody who's a lot older than you that you know it's working with. And when you think you hear God talking to you, you ask somebody who's way ahead of you in learning to listen, do you think that was God? If it lines up with the principles and the precepts of Scripture, no matter how radical it may seem, and if it's affirmed by someone that categorically would tell you you had gone loony or else you're walking in the way, go for it. It's time to start moving. Jesus said in John 10, 16, my sheep hear my voice. Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I'm God. When every other voice is hushed in the stillness of the soul, God will speak plenty loud enough. The problem is he's been talking to us, nagging us, and some of us are afraid that we've already heard him too well and we don't like the message. Yes, after you open your heart to some exploration and you actually start listening, friends, you've got to talk with God. If you want your soul calibrated for true north, if you don't want to be deceived by the darkening natural inclination of the carnal heart, which can take anything good and twist it bad or anything bad and twist it good, then you're going to have to let the Spirit blow into your life like the wind. And then you're going to have to do something about it. You're going to have to obey. It's going to involve some risk. But let me put a serious warning up right here. Human beings were made to be true. Listen to me. Human beings were made to be true. And I'm going to prove it with modern psychological science. For all of you that have taken psychology 101 in college, and for all of you who haven't and never will... And that's okay. There is a term you need to be familiar with. It's called cognitive dissonance. And even the secular students of the mind have discovered this, that the actions of an individual and their beliefs cannot remain out of sync for very long. In other words, what you believe is right or true, you must act on. Here's the warning. If you refuse to act on the movings of the Spirit in your life and the truth that He delivers to you with patience and kindness and persistence, I'm going to say it again with patience and kindness and persistence. If you refuse the prophetic voice, eventually you have to change how you think to fit how you're acting. Oh, it happens. You don't want to be out of sorts with your kids. So one of them makes a life choice you can't affirm. You're not going to stand up to it. You're gonna have to get out of the way, so something's gonna have to change. You're gonna have to ratchet down the value of that virtue in your mind, and eventually it won't be a virtue at all, and eventually the ones who have anything bad to say about your child's choice will be the unvirtuous ones, even though you probably should have been the first. To do it lovingly, but do it. I once, I once, you know, I was effectively a youth pastor for 20 years at an academy church. And I made the mistake of bringing up the most controversial subject in all of Adventism in all time. Go ahead, get in your mind what is it? Don't say anything. I was reading a book by a non-Adventist pastor the other day, and he said the same thing. I made the mistake of bringing up in a sermon and declaring with quite long Christian values, including Adventist values, the difference between modern so-called Christian music and the music of heaven. Oh, did I stir up a mess. I was sitting in the office of one of our church employees. I'll leave it that generic because it's a small enough church world. And that person came unglued on me. Unglued. Well, I'm going to assert today That truth remains truth, now how many people are for it? And error remains error, now how many people are for it? God's word and the principles of scripture, the Holy Spirit didn't change, neither did the Son and neither did the Father. And the songs are gonna be singing in the New Jerusalem are gonna be sweet and simple. Some of them will be sweet and sophisticated, but none of them will sound like the worldly music that we left behind. And for any of you that grew up in the world and then transitioned into the church, You are the best calibrated to quickly distinguish the difference. So I wondered, why did this person have to come off so vehemently? Well, they had made it a moral issue and that somehow I was severing a lifeline between the young people and God. Well, I have no doubt that the devil threw it out there as a supposed lifeline, but it didn't lead back to the ship of salvation. It wasn't too many months later that the person was fired for unethical behavior. What you need to know is that when you drift in issues of sincere honesty and truthfulness in your own heart in one area, you'll drift eventually in other areas. And to make up for the lack of confidence in the truth, you will exercise the emotionality or the power of your position or the letters after your name. You can besmirch and you can smear. You can use a spear or a pen or a social media site or whatever it might be, but the truth doesn't need to utilize those methods because the truth can bear up under scrutiny and civil dialogue. Can God explore your life with you? Or will you be stuck in a perpetual relational, emotional, and spiritual adolescent phase? This is the problem with a lot of our church members, and it's a big problem also with some of our pastors because they refuse to fulfill the prophetic role. Consequently, there is no catalyst for growth because nobody in the family system that exists in which this has been reinforced is going to stand up and say, you know what, you got a problem in how you relate to people. And for those little churches where people have taken hold, stranglehold on control dynamics in the church, it's not going to change until the Holy Spirit and a kind and willing person, be it an elder or a pastor or a deaconess, has enough love and boldness to say, you know what? This is broken. It's immature. It's not right. You need to grow. And I'm standing up to you and I'm declaring an end to the societal and systemic dysfunction operating inside these walls. Little churches can be wonderful places if there's great leadership. And they can be a wasteland of infighting and control if there's not. But for all of us today, God is calling us to explore only with Him our story, our place, and our trajectory. You married? Pity the person that's married to somebody who's not true and honest in their inmost person. I've been at it for 36 years. I'm here to tell you it's the best thing that ever happened to me aside from my salvation. And I'm here to tell you it's super hard work. But the best marriages are to the people who are honest and true in their inmost soul. No, we don't fix everybody's problems. We can't even fix our own overnight. But I'll tell you what, if you've got a good partner who can say to you on the way out of the out of the auditorium at Laurelwood, well, I think you're bitter. Think about it. There are chapters in my child-rearing where I can look back and see how that bitterness affected my degree of patience with my children. Don't tell me pastors don't have some difficult things to deal with and they don't pay a higher price than most people know. Yes, God, you have permission to explore my soul with me. Yes, search me and know me, and I'm going to listen. And then, God, I'm going to obey. And if it's embarrassing because I got to admit some things nobody knew were going on, I'm going to do it. I need to tell my church family here today there's some things I've apologized to people to, only the very closest. Probably the only, the closest one, my wife, that I was not duty-bound to apologize for because it was private. But nonetheless, I wanted to set up a firewall from ever going back there again. And then you got to protect. We're not yet to the compass that points true north. You know, the needle... To the pole. We're not there, but I need to tell you something. If you want to be honest and true in your own soul, you better remove the magnetizing dynamics of the idolatrous opportunities and pleasures that exist in this age. Get rid of them. What do you get as a result? Perfect peace, courage, self respect, the deepest, best friends actual meaning and purpose in your life. I survived that journey 20-some years ago. I actually grew through it. My compass got, my compass got corrupted. <laughs> but praise God for a Savior who won't let me go. And he won't let you go either. You may have done some pretty bad things. You may be embarrassed. There may be secret chapters nobody knows about. But God knows. And he doesn't want to rub your face in it, but he doesn't want to say, child, would you take my hand? I'd like to get you up out of the pit. I'd like to deliver you from this cesspool. I'd like to get you out of the pig pen. Would you trust me? I'll go with you. I'll stand by your side. Think about Jesus with Nicodemus. You should have been baptized by John, he told him. Unless you receive the baptism of the water and the Spirit, you're not even going to see the kingdom. How does that work? You don't know? Let the wind blow. When I walked out of my house this morning, the wind was blowing. Let the wind blow in your soul, friends. The wind blows where it will. It's the Holy Spirit he's asking today. Listen. Getting the attention of the world won't be that hard after we give our attention to God. Turn it off. Walk away from it. I don't know what it is, but I do know this. The sheep hear his voice. He brings them into the fold where he protects them. And they don't have any wants. You know that old commercial, Verizon retired it. Yeah, that really kind of clean cut guy walking around. Why did that commercial hang on so long? It's probably because all of us hate getting our cell phones dropped. It's so annoying to be somewhere where you're talking and they're not listening. They would if they could. Imagine how God must feel as he waits patiently for that moment when to that ever-present question where he says, can you hear me now? Someone says, yes. He's patient, friends. But don't go another day resisting. If he's talking to you about something, you can't fix it yourself anyway. But you do have to be honest and true in your inmost soul if you plan to see him face to face. And you can't make yourself that way. It's his work. So you've got to hear what he says and trust the hand that was nail-pinned and is nail-pierced for you. I know now, 20-some years later, there are brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of them make mistakes. I make mistakes. But I'm awfully glad God could prompt that godly woman standing by my side to say, "This story's not turning out quite right. You're bitter." And I heard him speaking through her. And by God's grace, He's helped me farther up on the mountain. I don't ever want to be without the clarifying, recalibrating voice of Jesus. And when I have been, praise the Lord, his hand was heavy on me. And my bones were dried up. But as soon as I confessed, I was free. Still works the same way. Go ahead and listen. Let the wind blow.